Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, published by Melville House in 2023, Mike Rothschild delves into the history of the conspiracy industry around the Rothschild family. He sorts out myth from reality to find the truth about these conspiracy theories and their spreaders. Mike Rothschild is a journalist and conspiracy theory expert. He has written two previous books, including The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. So uh, before anybody gets any ideas, I'm not related to the Rothschild family. (laughs) The... uh, you can't see it on the podcast, but there's a big, big asterisk right there by my name, and the bottom says no relation. Uh, that's that's never really stopped anybody in the conspiracy theory world, but I figure, you know, hey, I'm not trying to hide anything. Uh, I, I cannot uh, get you a discount on a bottle of wine. Uh, you'll, you'll have to go elsewhere for that. Um, my, my interest in this particular subject really stems from this unique combination of being a journalist who's been interested in conspiracy theories for a long time and having the last name of one of the biggest uh, focal points of conspiracy theories for the last couple of centuries. You know, that that wasn't part of any plan. When I started doing this, I wasn't really that familiar with the Rothschild family. I mean, I knew they were wealthy, but you know, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I didn't know any rich people. Nobody thought I was rich. Uh, you know, it just wasn't something that anybody uh, anybody ever thought about. But when I started doing this, I would get comments like, oh, a Rothschild writing about conspiracies, ha, ha, ha. And, you know, for for a long time, I was just like, okay, whatever. You know, th- this is your problem, not mine. But as I started to get a little more notoriety, it, it really started to, to, to stick with me. You know, so many people accusing me of being part of this family or then saying, you know, I took the name because I wanted people to think I was part of the family or I'm like an outcast from the family. So... I really I wanted to explore kind of what all of this meant, why this name is so connected with conspiracy theories, with myths, with the the kind of tropes about Jewish wealth and power. And you know, in writing the the QAnon book, the Rothschilds figure into QAnon, but in a very kind of tangential way. And I thought that was a really good jumping off point to really figure out w- who this family is, what they really mean to the global conspiracy movement. And one of the things I realized very quickly is that almost everything people think they know about this family is is either exaggerated or just completely false. So I, I very quickly found that there was an enormous amount of material to go through. Right, right. So speaking of the enormous amount of material, um, you know, the, not only is, are the, the, is the Rothschild family kind of very famous, but there are many books already about the Rothschild family. Um, um, I'm curious why you felt that there was a need for another book about the Rothschilds. Sure, it's a great question. Uh, I've I found in doing the research and the writing that since the end of World War II, there's been about once a decade, there's another biography of the family, but they're all kind of the same. Some of them are very good, but they tend to focus on the trappings of wealth, the largesse, the minutia of art collecting and banking and 
you know, interest rates on bonds and things like that. There's very little uh, sort of critical writing about the family, but more than that, there's very little writing about the myths of the family and how they've impacted global anti-Semitism. You get there a little bit in Neil Ferguson's two-volume biography of the family, which was a, a one of the biggest reference points that I used because it's very detailed in terms of the, the the banking. He had access to the archives in a way that a lot of other writers haven't gotten. But of course, those books were published at the end of the 90s, and there's a whole swath of conspiracy theories that they've missed out on. And that's not what their focus is. So I found that there's a lot of biographical writing about the family, but there's very little writing about what the family has meant to other Jews and to other people in the conspiracy theory world. So there's there's all of these other books, but they don't really explore the territory that I'm exploring. Right. Uh, speaking of which, were as someone who's Jewish, uh, were you worried that a book about the details of Rothschild conspiracy theories would just bring further attention to such theories and potentially increase anti-Semitism um, that is already, of course, at a, at a kind of heightened level these days. Well, that's always a concern when you're writing about conspiracy theories is the, is the idea of platforming them. And for a long time, one of the biggest barriers that I had in trying to do this work was most people were still in the mode of don't pay attention to it, don't give it oxygen, don't feed the trolls, ignore it and it'll go away. Well, unfortunately, as we saw with something like QAnon, Ignoring it does not make it go away. It just means it grows with nobody paying attention to it. So I think with a lot of these theories, this is stuff that's out there. This is stuff that's been out there for decades, for centuries, for millennia in some cases. I don't think that there will be more anti-Semitism simply because I have exposed a lot of these things. I think what I'm hoping for is that people will understand what some of these dog whistles mean, what some of these codes mean, what this language means, where it comes from, kind of how it's intertwined with history. You know, I'm hoping to kind of burn away some of the myth that's around the family rather than increase the myth. And, you know, as I talk about in the introduction of the book, my delving into a lot of these materials is should not be uh, constituted by anyone as a uh, an invitation for them to do so. A lot of this stuff is is absolutely horrific. It's just awful, and also really badly written and not not uh, not enjoyable in any way. <laughs> it's one of the real secrets of conspiracy theory literature. A lot of it's just terrible, uh, really hard to follow, really sort of in, incomprehensible. So I, I really stepped into a lot of this stuff with the idea that I'm reading this so that you don't have to, so that you're getting the gist of it. You do not have to dive into David Icke or None Dare Call a Conspiracy or any of this other stuff. So what I'm hoping to do is really expose a lot of this stuff and, and demystify a lot of it and, and, and in a way almost make it less interesting. Right. And um, you write that it is impossible to understand why conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds endure without understanding the endurance of tropes about Jews and money. What do you mean by that? So the idea of intertwining Jews and financial power is absolutely critical to Rothschild theories. It's absolutely critical to George Soros conspiracy theories. But there is a an underlying myth about Jews and money, that Jews are, are wealthier, that Jews have an innate wisdom when it comes to money, that Jews are just better with money. And this is stuff that goes back to the Middle Ages. And of course, that's the subject for, you know, 
many other different books. I mean, you could write a whole other book about every single one of these things. But I really wanted to go through some of the basics of why Jews and particularly banking and money lending are so intertwined. There's a lot of myth about it. Some of it's true. Some of it isn't. Some of it kind of transferred over to the diaspora when Jews started coming over to the U.S. They took a lot of these myths with them. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is harmless. You know, it's, you know, jokes about Jews being cheap and, you know, bad tippers and things like that. But there is a very thin line between joking and bigotry. And I think it's a line that is very, very easy to, to step over without intending to do so. And I think in order to understand why the Rothschilds are such a focal point for conspiracy theories, we have to understand why Jews are such a focal point for financial conspiracy theories. Right. So um, to, for listeners who are not really familiar with this material at all, could you explain a little bit about where the trope of Jews being greedy comes from? Sure. So going back to the Middle Ages, uh, there, there have been a lot of prohibitions on lending with interest. And of course, what's generally referred to in the Bible is usury. And usury is bad. Usury is one of the worst things you could possibly do. And of course, Christians were not, were not allowed to then lend money and interest, but somebody had to do it. So you have this job that has to be done that nobody's allowed to do. So paradoxically, you give it to the people who you trust the least. It's, it's, it's very strange. And there's a lot of uh, sort of paradox baked into all of this. So Jews would become the money lenders for their communities. And of course, they were charging interest. But there was always a, a sort of a line of how much interest are you allowed to charge before you're stepping into usury? And usury is is unadulterated greed. But when Christians started to get into money lending as some of these uh, canon law prohibitions fell away, then that was okay. So greed and Jews are basically intertwined with how much money are you allowed to make off of other people's money? And there is no hard and fast rule. And it, it made things very treacherous for Jews who were in money lending, who were in banking, who were in money changing. There, there was constant danger. The rules were constantly changing. And anybody who stepped out of line was considered to be overly greedy. And that is a trope that's really stuck with the Jewish community ever since. Right. And obviously, it's interesting to think of what does a society benefit by uh, uh, um, giving uh, people who are marginal to that society the function of providing money at, at at interest. On the one hand, they're able to get loans that are needed so people could conduct business. And at the same time, both on a kind of theological, religious level, uh, you could always say, but of course, what they're doing is very bad. And that's why the people who are doing it are bad people. And, you know, their religion is bad or whatever. But at the same time, on a practical level, if things go poorly for the people who uh, um, uh, borrowed the money, they could always then kind of attack the money lenders and say, you guys are shysters, you guys are, you know, low lives, whatever, we don't have to pay you back. So it, it's a kind of convenient thing to have a marginalized group running the money lending in a given society. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those sort of heads I win, tails you lose kinds of things. It, the, it, and in the middle is the Jewish community who really just want to be left alone and allowed to practice their customs and eke out a living in whatever way they can. And it just got harder and harder and harder. All right. And I'm curious, how did the Catholic Church respond to Jews lending money at interest during the Middle Ages? 
There were all sorts of prohibitions about it. Uh, there, one of the councils in the 1300s, uh, the Council of Nicaea, I think, um, said that you know usury was on par with murder and, and like the worst thing that you could possibly do. But at the same time, they needed money to expand their communities. You know, these ornate churches, you know, they weren't built for free. So somebody needed to to have the money to do that. Eventually, some of these canon law prohibitions started to decrease. And that's when a lot of the Jewish community started to get into trouble because they realized, oh, we can actually do this. And we're going to do, you know, the Christian community realized we can do this, but we're going to we're going to get rid of these prohibitions for ourselves, but we're going to keep them on the Jewish community. So there were the, the laws and the, the precepts were constantly changing. And the Jewish community really never knew where it stood in a lot of these Middle Ages communities. Right. So given this history and 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 of, of Jewish money lending in, in Europe, Christian Europe and uh, the kinds of uh, negative stereotypes that evolved around Jews and money. Um, with that background in mind, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the Rothschild family itself. Who was Mayor Amschel Rothschild? Sure. So Mayor Amschel Rothschild was you know, the next in a line of Jewish moneylenders who were living in the Frankfurt Jewish ghetto. It was very I mean, literally the definition of a ghetto, a, a basically a walled city within a city that was squalid, that was uh, completely hemmed in by laws. You know, the Jews weren't allowed to leave except at certain times. They were only allowed a certain number of marriages. They had to doff their cap when they saw a Christian if they were outside the walls. I mean, it was essentially a, a prison, but they had in that community, uh, you know, they created essentially a financial miniature empire in a lot of ways. So Mayer's father was a coin dealer. Mayer, uh, it started off by going to rabbinical school, but his parents died very young and he had siblings. And so he had to go back to Frankfurt to work. And he became the court Jew to the crown prince of Hesse. He became the uh, sort of rare, the dealer in rare coins and metals. And he very slowly worked his way up through this system, making deals for himself. And he, you know, he had a a small but but prospering business. It was nowhere near the f- giant empire that would later come. He had 10 children, he had five sons and five daughters. His oldest son, Amschel, started to get into business with him in Frankfurt, and they started to work their way up in the nobility of the Holy Roman Empire. And so by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, Mayer and his son were tasked with helping hide the treasure of the Elector of Hesse, and this is one of the you know major positions in the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, the Holy Roman Empire doesn't have ha, doesn't have long to live, but there's a lot of money there. So they make a lot of money lending out this money, trying to protect it from Napoleon. So very quickly, this family goes from sort of run of the mill coin dealers, money changers to very wealthy and very powerful among the Jewish community in Frankfurt. And then his sons start to go off to the financial capitals of Europe. And by the time his son, Nathan, dies in 1836, Nathan is the richest man in the world. So this family grows from basically sort of big fish in a small pond to the biggest fish within the space of about 40 years. All right. And um, how did uh, Mayor Amschel's five sons become an international banking dynasty? So what the, what Mayer deduced very quickly was that the way to keep this growing wealth 
in his family was to literally keep it in his family, to have his sons go off and grow various parts of the businesses. Now, there are all kinds of myths that, he, you know, there, there was this deathbed admonishment by mayor that his five sons were to go off to the capitals of Europe, that none of that happened. Uh, they, this, his sons left very gradually over a couple of decades. A couple of them left after he died. But his sons went to the places where money was being made. So his son, uh, his oldest son, Amschel, stayed in Frankfurt. His son, Nathan, went first to Manchester and then to London. His son, James, went to Paris. Those are the big ones. A couple of his other sons went to um, Naples. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's the five. So his his sons start growing their business in textiles, in, in lending, and particularly lending it with lending gold. And this happened to be the time when the Napoleonic Wars were going on and the forces against Napoleon needed an enormous amount of money. And they couldn't get it because the continent was being blockaded by France. So Mayer and then his son uh, Nathan in London basically cooked up a system where gold would go back and forth across the English Channel, be lent at interest, and that money would fund the forces of Wellington. And this basically kept the Napoleonic Wars going. And the Rothschilds made an enormous amount of money doing this very quickly. Right. And what is the Waterloo canard against the Rothschilds? Sure. So this is really intertwined in the Rothschild myth. This this really is the beginning of the Rothschild myth. The, the, you know, the Rothschilds had already started to become the subject of literature, of cartoons, but they were sort of poked fun at as the new rich and, and you know, mocked for gently mocked for their largesse and their palaces and things like that. But with the Napoleonic Wars, they made a huge amount of money very quickly. Now, the myths with Waterloo didn't start until decades after the battle. And they really start in 1846. So uh, this is 30 years after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo. This is 10 years after Nathan Rothschild has died. And Mayer has long died. He died in 1812. A pamphlet appears in Paris. Uh, it's an anonymous pamphlet. It's written under the pen name Satan. So, you know, it's super subtle there. And it's, it's actually making two different accusations against two different Rothschild brothers. And what you have here the basics of not just the Waterloo accusation, but this idea that all of the Rothschilds are working together to subjugate Europe under their, under their thumb. The first is that this train crash that took place a few months earlier outside of Paris, which had taken place on a Rothschild-owned line, on one of the lines that James de Rothschild, who was one of the sons of Mayer, had started. And it was this horrific event, you know, something 15 people died. It was covered in the French and English papers in this very graphic, very lurid detail. And it was blamed on uh, James being cheap, not caring about what happened to Gentiles, of neglecting the maintenance of, you know, saying, oh, it's not worth it to, you know, the lives of men are not worth the cost of fixing the rails, all of this stuff. And the Rothschilds are blamed for this train crash. Now, in the next part of this pamphlet, this French pamphleteer then decides that Nathan Rothschild not only made a gigantic amount of money at Waterloo, but he manipulated the news of the battle and claiming that Nathan was at Waterloo, that he was so close to the battle, he could smell the smoke, he could see the, the, you know, the death cries on the, the wounded men. 
and feel you know feeling there was an opportunity for a massive score nathan jumps on a horse he rides across belgium he gets to the port of ostend in belgium he he bribes a, a sailor to take him across the channel in a once in a century storm he gets to london he gets to the london stock exchange and he he leans up against his favorite pillar and he's so exhausted and and defeated that the other stockbrokers immediately start assuming that the British forces have lost. So they start selling off all their stocks. Meanwhile, Nathan, being the, you know, the crafty Jew, is manipulating all of this. He's signaling his agents to buy, buy, buy. Then the actual news of the British victory comes. The stocks that Nathan bought explode in value, and Nathan is suddenly the richest man in England and controls the British Empire. Now, none of this is true. This did not happen in any capacity, but as socialism is starting to sweep France and Europe in the late 1840s, leading to the revolutions of 1848, this is a really attractive story to a lot of people. So this pamphlet uh, sells something like 60,000 copies, which is a, you know, a huge amount at that time. It sparks a pamphlet war. There are uh, pamphlets against the the pamphleteer. There are pamphlets against the Rothschilds. There are responses. There are responses to the responses. It spreads all across Europe. It really kicks off this this kind of you know back and forth sort of tabloid war going on, and it finally burns out once the revolutions get going. But the lasting impact of that is this idea that Nathan Rothschild manipulated the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo to make an enormous amount of money, and we are still dealing with that myth. Uh, you know, almost two centuries later. Wow. Um, speaking of other um, uh, myths and conspiracies in France, uh, what was the Dreyfus Affair and how did it relate to the Rothschilds? Sure. So the Dreyfus Affair happens uh, a couple generations later in 1890. It's a hugely complicated subject. And I try not to get into too much detail in the book just because it's a whole other subject itself. But a uh, an Alsatian French Jewish artillery officer is accused of leaking military plans to Germany. And it sparks a massive wave of public anti-Semitism at a time when anti-Semitism is ticking up again in France around the same time. So right around this time, you have an, the publication of another hugely successful, massively anti-Semitic book called Jewish France by this guy, Edouard Drumont. This book is another one of these massive hits. It sells half a million copies. It's the most printed book in France. It is. Uh, it mentions the Rothschilds hundreds of times. So the Rothschilds and Jewish wealth are being linked to what's going on with the Dreyfus Affair. Now, the Dreyfus Affair eventually burns out. Alfred Dreyfus is exonerated. He rejoins the French army. The, the whole Everybody kind of moves on from it. But these, these conspiracy theories, they stick in the European public just as the march to the Great War is starting to get going. So every generation, it feels like there's another public spike in anti-Semitism, particularly in France, driven by another wave of you know scabrous anti-Semitic works that focus on the Rothschilds and that encompass public events that are going on at the same time. All right. And um, what are some of the myths related to the Rothschilds' influence in American affairs? Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. And one of the things I realized very quickly writing this book is that the Rothschild myth is so much bigger than the Rothschilds' impact in America. In Europe, you really could see the impact of the Rothschilds on 
money, on fashion, on horse racing, on architecture. But in America, they, that just never happened. The Rothschilds didn't come to America. They, they, the, by the third generation of, of family members, they thought America was too provincial. It was too much of a backwater. And they were constantly confounded by the differences in federal laws, state laws, local laws. You know, in, in their time in Europe, a, a king or a prime minister would just go to the Rothschilds and say, I need 20 million francs to finance this purchase. And the Rothschilds would lend them 20 million francs and then the, the monarch would just pay them back. That kind of banking just didn't kind of, didn't fly in America. So the Rothschilds were just utterly confused by how things worked in America, and particularly by the cycles of booms and busts in America. But the myth really came with Jews who were emigrating to the U.S. So by the time of the Civil War, you have this idea that Jewish money and, and European power is exerting itself in American affairs. And this happens a lot with the Civil War. Now, the Rothschilds had a, an agent in New York. His name is August Belmont, uh, born August Schoenberg in, in Germany. He was a very young man when he came to the U.S. He wasn't even attempting to go to the U.S. He stopped in New York on his way to Havana and realized that the to, to check on Rothschild interests in Cuba, realized the Rothschilds didn't have a banker in New York because their previous banker had gone belly up in the panic of 1837 and just decided to go into business for both himself and the family. So Belmont is the family's conduit to the United States, and he is a Democrat. He's not enraptured with Lincoln. Um, he's not particularly enamored with the Union cause. And he's giving the Rothschilds a number of details about what's going on in the Civil War. And he advises the family to basically to stay out of it, that the, the Union's going to win. The, you know, the Confederacy is too unstable. Basically, Belmont wants the Confederacy to be recognized by other nations, not because he's pro-slavery, but because he just wants business to go back to normal. And this ends up in the Union papers as the Rothschilds support the Confederacy. And of course, that's not true. But this myth sticks with it. There's a, there's a huge arguments going on in, in abolitionist papers leading up to the election of 1864. That fades out as you know after the Civil War ends. But the conspiracy theories just sort of stick with the family, and there's a level of distrust there that really never goes away, and it gets lumped into events that would happen later, the gold versus silver debate, then the First World War, then into the Depression. So these myths pile onto each other one after another, almost always based on things that never happened or that happened in a way that's not being explained correctly. Right. And... Uh, how did the Nazis and their allies weaponize the myths of the Rothschilds for their political ends? Yeah, it's a, it's a major, major talking point for the Nazis, that Jewish money is responsible for what's going on. Of course, Hitler and the Nazi propaganda machine effortlessly weaponized this stab-in-the-back myth that the, you know, the German fighting man never lost a battle on German soil and it was about to win, but the cowards and the Weimar government, backed by Jews and Bolsheviks, betrayed them. So that, get, that makes a lot of hay for the Nazis. And then, of course, the global economy collapses. And it had already started in the United States, but the biggest financial contagion in Europe was the collapse of this bank in Austria called Credit Anstalt. Credit Anstalt's one of the biggest banks in Austria. It was founded by Solomon Rothschild, one of the sons of Mayer. So it's now being run by one of his descendants, uh, Louis de Rothschild. 
So Credit Anstalt fails. Uh, it starts a contagion going through Europe, eventually to the rest of the world. And by the end of 1931, the German and Austrian economies are in absolute ruins, and the Nazis are weaponizing this. They're, they're pointing the finger specifically at the Rothschilds as the cause of this. So as the Nazi propaganda machine really gets going, they find that the Rothschilds are a really easy target. And by 1940, the Nazi uh, film machine is really moving, and they 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 shift in the tone of their films from a sort of nakedly pro-Aryan, pro-Germanic to nakedly anti-Jewish. And a couple of these films that come out are centered on the Rothschilds. There's one that is called the the Rothschilds Shares at Waterloo, and it's this uh, basically photo negative version of a 1934 film about the Rothschilds that was released in Hollywood that was actually a big hit. Um, so it takes the story and turns the Rothschilds into the greedy villains. And the other one is this film called The Eternal Jew, which is this faux documentary that takes footage from that 1934 Hollywood film and basically says this is an example of uh, you know the, the greed of the of the first family of Judaism it's a film made by Hollywood Jews nobody involved in the film was Jewish uh, you know that the Jews just didn't have that kind of power in Hollywood at that point so the, the Nazis are able to take these myths and weaponize them to a a German public that is being moved from we need to get the Jews out of public society to we are conquering these lands full of subhumans and they need to be eliminated. So you're, you're moving a population from prejudice to murder and the Rothschilds are a very convenient way to do that. Right. And you mentioned the 1934 Hollywood film, The House of Rothschild. Uh, how historically accurate was that film? Uh, not very. The, so the uh, the House of Rothschild was an attempt by the the film industry to talk about the plight of Jews in Europe without talking about the plight of Jews in Europe. There was already kind of a moratorium going on in the film industry of Jewish stories, of Jewish uh, Jewish writing, Jewish screenwriters weren't getting work. There was a, a deep seated fear, not only of inflaming anti semitism, but of in particular of losing the German film market. And I think a lot of Hollywood executives saw what happened in 1930 with the release of All Quiet on the Western Front. Of course, it's a hugely popular film in the US, wins the Best Picture Oscar, but the Nazis hated it and there were riots when it was released. And I think everybody it didn't want that to happen. So there's this unspoken moratorium on dramatizing what was going on in Europe. But the uh, you know Daryl Zanuck, who started 20th Century Pictures, wanted to tell a Jewish story that would not inflame Nazi Germany, and they they, he, they centered on the Rothschilds. But the story that they tell is very ahistorical. A lot of what happens in it just never happened. They invent all these different characters, and in particular, they really show Mayor Amschel Rothschild as this sort of greedy schemer who who you know is obsessed with money. Uh, it, if they were trying to help, they didn't do that great a job of it. And of course, those are the scenes that were appropriated by uh, by Joseph Goebbels to use in the Eternal Jew. I, I mean, it was sort of the worst nightmare of the of the film community and of the Jewish community come to life. Right, right. So maybe it wasn't intended to be anti-Semitic, but it certainly had uh, enough material that could be twisted to present a very anti-Semitic portrait. Absolutely. 
Right. Um, and uh, moving along <laughs> historically a bit, uh, who is Eustace Mullins and what role did he play in promoting Rothschild conspiracies? Sure. So Eustace Mullins was one of the first in the major post-war conspiracy theory promoters. And he was a, a young man who served in the Second World War, and he was a little bit aimless afterwards. He was already uh, starting to cultivate some pro-fascist, anti-Semitic tendencies, and he uh, made a connection with Ezra Pound, the you know the world-renowned poet and editor who was also a rabid fascist and anti-Semite. Had been you know, spent the war years in Italy making propaganda broadcasts for Mussolini. This is just a die, you know, died in the wool fascist and anti-Semite. And at the end of the war, Pound is arrested for treason and he's institutionalized at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. And um, Eustace Mullins makes his acquaintance and they become friends. You know, Mullins becomes part of this kind of group of, of hangers on around Pound. Of course, Pound is regaling them with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. He's giving them the protocols of the elders of Zion. And as the story goes, as Mullins tells it, Pound asks Mullins to start doing some research into the Federal Reserve. Mullins then does this. Uh, he writes this book, which it, at first is called just Mullins on the Federal Reserve. Nobody in New York, in the New York publishing industry will touch it. It's published by uh, another one of Pound's acolytes, and it becomes a gigantic hit. And uh, the book is eventually retitled Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Mullins reprints it every couple of years with new material, and it becomes one of the foundational works of the post-war conspiracy theory movement. And Mullins would become a massive figure in this movement. He lived up until the mid, mid aughts, I think. And he is really the bridge between the kind of classical pre-war fascism and anti-Semitism and the new internet-based anti-Semitism. He gets picked up by people like Alex Jones, who just fawn over him as the godfather of New World Order research. So Mullins becomes this figure who bridges these time periods with this unbelievably hateful writing about Jews, about the Rothschilds, about the medical industry. Uh, it, it's very, very scabrous work, and it's still hugely popular and influential. Right. And what impact did the internet have in promoting Rothschild conspiracy theories? Well, as the internet starts to become popular in the early 90s, the conspiracy theory community immediately adapts to this. And one of the things I did for Jewish Space Lasers is I dug about as deep as I could into the surviving archives of early uh early Usenet posts, early internet BBS posts, you know, the vast majority of this stuff is gone, but some of it is still around. And I start finding posts on Usenet groups like alt.conspiracy, and it's immediately one of the most popular groups on the Usenet. And immediately you start seeing Rothschild conspiracy theories. And a lot of it is stuff that's reprinted from Mullins, from um, other people like Gary Allen, who wrote the book None Dare Call It Conspiracy. There's New Age newsletters. But conspiracy theorists excel at early adoption of technology. And immediately they see that the internet is going to be a very, very useful way to disseminate these conspiracy theories and create them at a much, much higher speed. 
do Rothschild conspiracy theories have currency outside of Western culture, such as in contemporary China and Japan? Or is this a uniquely sort of Western phenomenon? Well, Jewish, you know, and anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are popular around the world, uh, even in countries like China and Japan, where there aren't really any Jews. And the Rothschilds in particular become a focal point for, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s, a kind of Japanese obsession with Judaism that, you know, there's a lot of books written about sort of the links between you know, the way the Japanese are treated and the way the Jews have been treated, that, of course, immediately curdles into anti-Semitism. And they become extremely popular in China as well, uh, in in particular are tied to some of the Asian economic calamities of the first decade of the 2000s. And in particular, this Chinese book called Currency Wars, which becomes this gigantic bestseller. Millions of copies are sold. It spawns this sort of copycat industry of books attacking Jewish wealth, and in particular, the Rothschilds. There's all these kinds of Jewish wisdom books, uh, Jewish business tips and things like that. So the the Asian world becomes kind of almost unhealthily obsessed with Jews, and that that almost always curdles into anti-Semitism and into attacks on the focal points of Jews, which are really the Rothschilds for a long time. All right. I have to say, I, when I was reading that part of your book, I I, I was reminded uh, about 20 years ago, I spent a summer in Beijing in China. And I remember I took a cab one day and I got into a conversation with a cab driver and I was um, in the cab with a friend of mine who is an American Jew who spoke uh, you know, uh, fluent Chinese. And we started talking to the cab driver and then my friend is not you know visibly uh you know re- jewish or religious or whatever but i at that time had a long beard and a, a big yarmulke and this whole thing <laughs> and so the driver was very interested in me right. and he's like like what's up with your buddy who is that you know yeah. and and my friend said that he's jewish yotai he's jewish okay. and right away the cab driver said Karl Marx, Karl Marx, you know, <laughs> and then he pointed to his temple. He's like, like saying, like very smart, like yeah. you know, Karl Marx, Jews, something are are very smart, you know. And I just I found it fascinating that a random taxi driver knew that Karl Marx, you know, had uh, you know came from a Jewish background. And I thought it was interesting that he connected Jews with being smart. He didn't say anything about money, or at least I didn't hear that but but it was interesting that you know this is not like a jewish environment or <laughs> environment that has a lot of um contemporary kind of uh, um interactions with jews but there was already kind of a very vibrant uh association between jews and you know intelligence and maybe you know being good at business or something like that sure Sure. Uh, yeah, there, there's an exoticness to, to Jews uh, in parts of the world where there really aren't any Jews. And, you know, that myth of, oh, Jews are, are all really smart. That's, I mean, it sounds complimentary, but it's very easy to turn that on its head. And, uh, you know, a lot of authors and, and now sort of content creators have been able to do that in parts of the world where there is no real Jewish presence. Right. And speaking of conspiracies and American culture, um, what connections does Donald Trump have to the Rothschilds? Well, it's it's very interesting because, you know, Donald Trump kind of skated into political prominence based on his belief in conspiracy theories that, you know, touting the Obama birth certificate conspiracy and you know the Clinton conspiracy theories and stuff like that. So when he he really sort of took control of the Republican Party, 
uh, his base, you know, is very vocally anti-Semitic in, in a lot of cases. But of course, he has a number of business connections to the Rothschilds. And one of the biggest is his commerce secretary, Wilbur Ross, was for quite some time the head of the bankruptcy division at Rothschild Inc. in New York. And it was Wilbur Ross who was tasked by Rothschild Inc. You know, then Rothschild Inc. has long since passed out of the control of the Rothschild family. But it was it was Wilbur Ross who came up with the plan to save the Trump Taj Mahal from bankruptcy. So it was and Ross saw the sort of frenzy of celebrity around Donald Trump and realized, hey, we can exploit this. So it, it Trump's one of big, Trump's biggest business successes is really tied to the Rothschilds. And of course, there are other links. You know, Paul Manafort was really connected to. Uh, one of the Rothschild heirs in England, Nat Rothschild, Emmanuel Macron, who you know Trump had this weird kind of alpha male love hate relationship with uh, for many years, was a banker at Rothschild and Co. in Paris. So the these connections that Trump has to the Rothschilds were just never talked about by his by his big fan base. Um, you know, very very easy to kind of skip over that stuff if it's not convenient to the myth that you've built. Right, it is very strange. Um, 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 you wrote a book all about QAnon. Um, I'm curious are um, are there any is there any um, uh, dis- anything distinct about the conspiracies QAnon promotes in relation to the Rothschilds? Well, there are a number of Rothschild mentions in the QAnon um, mythography, I guess. Uh, there's the idea that the Rothschilds own all the central banks and some of the there's a, a section of Q posts that are just lists of central banks that are supposedly owned by the Rothschilds. Now, that's not really how central banking works. I mean, the central bank is a is a country's organ for printing money and regulating financial policy. But, you know, that doesn't really stop any of these people from believing. And you get all these internet myths that there's, you know, three or five or seven countries that don't have a Rothschild central bank and we're always at war with these countries. It's ridiculous. The other thing that really cropped up with the Rothschilds in particular in QAnon was the idea that the Rothschilds were holding these uh, vast human hunting parties and occult rituals in their Black Forest estate. Now, one of the things that always amused me is that um, Q didn't seem to know that the Black Forest is in Germany and not Austria. Uh, The Rothschilds do not own any land in the Black Forest. I'm not sure anybody does. But the Rothschilds did own and still do own a part of a massive, massive parcel of woodland in Austria. It was actually seized by the Nazis, the, and it took the Rothschilds quite a long time to get it back after the Soviets took control of it. And they, they sold most of it off. But they had these two lodges that they'd built. And right around that time, the heirs of the Austrian family sold the lodges off. And the you know Q turns it into this giant conspiracy theory that oh the the hunting parties were found there and they had to have a fire sale I mean nothing like that happened and all of this stuff just comes from other right wing blogs and other right wing cranks but it's very easy to tie here's this shadowy wealthy family and they own a bunch of land oh what are they doing on that land why are they running away from it so it's very easy to turn the this this wealthy family that you don't really know a lot about but you've you've heard a lot and it's not good you you turn that into an instant conspiracy theory and people like the QAnon community and the you know a lot of the other conspiracy purveyors are really really good at doing that all right, and you write that uh, George Soros has become the Rothschilds of the 21st century. What do you mean by that? So 
Soros really comes to prominence in the mid 90s. You know, he gets this reputation as the man who broke the Bank of England and he made all this money in currency speculation, but Soros had no link to the Rothschilds. He he never worked for them. He is completely different path uh for how he made his money. He really was self-made in a, in a number of ways. In the mid 90s, the Lyndon LaRouche publishing empire starts to connect the Rothschilds and Soros, and they called Soros the, the Rothschilds court Jew and all this other stuff. None of this stuff really sticks beyond the far, far right crank community that's been into LaRouche for a long time. But then George Soros starts to get involved in American politics in 2004. He starts making major donations to John Kerry's campaign because of his opposition to the war in Iraq. So Soros immediately, within just a couple of years, becomes public enemy number one for the right-wing conspiracy machine. Uh, you know, the Rothschilds are, are fading from prominence. They, you know, they really aren't in the public eye very much. They don't respond to the theories about them. They're certainly not involved in American politics. But here's Soros, who does respond to the attacks on him and is now getting involved in American politics. So very quickly, you have people like Glenn Beck, people like Bill O'Reilly, creating these vast webs of conspiracy theories putting Soros at the head in a way that it really would have been the Rothschilds at the head really just a, a decade or so earlier. So Soros takes the place of the Rothschilds that they'd had for 200 years as the focal point of Jewish power trying to overexert itself in Western life. Hmm. Wow. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here. I'm wondering, um, what do you think the persistence of Rothschild myths teaches us about the nature of conspiracy theories in general? That's a that's a really good question. I think that the persist, persistence of the Rothschild myth teaches us that these theories are incredibly durable. And once they're in the public, getting them out of the public is almost impossible because people want to believe them. People want to believe that there is a vast uh, European money network that's controlling everything. And of course, this European money network is going to be made up of Jews who are overrepresented in banking and finance. And those Jews are going to have to have a leader themselves. And why not the kings of the Jews, as the Rothschilds were called going back to the mid-1800s? So you have a, a focal point for all of this suspicion, all of this paranoia, and it, it becomes something that takes on a life of its own. Now, at this point, people just know the Rothschild name, even if they don't know anything about it. They just associate it with money. They associate it with power, with influence, even if the facts behind that are completely off base, that the Rothschilds have really never had power and influence in the United States. They did in Europe, certainly. They, you know, they were able to lend vast amounts of money to influence the Napoleonic Wars, to help uh, you know, Benjamin Disraeli buy the Egyptian shares in the Suez Canal. But that's over. That's been over for well over a century. Now all that we have left are the myths. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Absolutely. I'm happy to. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.